There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Look got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it was like culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. (laughs) How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello from South Moulton Street, which, if you feel the compulsion to check it out on a map, is just by the side of Bond Street tube station in the heart of the West End. And we are in the first floor, what looks like a conference room or a ballroom or something like that. And all around us we can see artefacts. And that's because we are at the Crossrail Archaeological Exhibition. We're halfway through the construction of Crossrail now, and as with any project of this size, and certainly anything involving digging in London, it's necessary to uh, bring in the archaeologists and make sure that we're not losing anything of historical value in the process. And this is an exhibition of what's been found so far. I'm about two minutes into the room. I've cast my eyes around, and the first things that I'm seeing here, well, really quite spectacular, a full skeleton. And this isn't one of those behind-a-glass-case type exhibitions. You could reach out and touch the exhibits here if you felt so inclined. We've been asked not to, of course. One or two familiar faces from the London history scene here. Mike Patterson from London Historians is over there. He's talking to Caroline Denny who is armed with a magnificently large zoom lens. I'm not sure what she's uh, thinking of using that for. Perhaps she's going bird spotting later on. 
Ambrose Hyde from London Black Plaques is here as well. I should have thought this is all grist for his mill. Now, of course, I'll be putting photographs of all the exhibits here onto my blog page. You can check that out at www.nquentinwolf.com and go to the uh, Radio Londonist Out Loud category. You'll find the pictures there. No exhibition of this sort, of course, would be complete without clay pipes. Much sought after, not least by a certain stall holder down at Spitalfield Traders Market who turns them all into jewellery. You'll, of course, know who I'm talking about if you've uh, listened to a recent show on that subject. Well, this is very interesting. There are some planks of wood here, not in very good condition. Uh, Of course, they've been dug up. It looks as though we're seeing what's left of perhaps iron mm, nails, rivets, not sure what to call them. Certainly very badly rusted. They form part of a clinker boat. It's a clinker-built boat believed to be up to 800 years old and discovered at the uh, excavation of a large shaft at the Crossrail site in Limo. There's a depiction here of how the fragment found here would have fit into the larger vessel. It looks as though it's a single-sailed, fairly low vessel and this is quite a substantial portion from somewhere near the front to give a bit of context there's a picture here from around about the time of the capture of Richard II and it shows a clinker built boat there there's a fellow in the foreground so I mean this is a little bit like a a, a canoe or a kayak or something like that it's got slightly pointy upturned ends <laughs> samples of the wood here are going to be sent to a laboratory and uh, there they will inspect the tree rings and they're going to discover when it was constructed using dendrochronology which is the tree ring uh, dating technique and in order for that to work they've got to keep the wood wet until the analysis is complete so it looks as though Somebody pops in here with a scientific version of a watering can every so often and uh, tops it up. We're by a low display case now. Several smallish items here turn out to be amber of 55 million years in age. These were found at Canary Wharf and they're quite attractive objects, glittering slightly under the display lighting. I don't know about you, but I can hardly get my mind around a figure like that. We've also got the remains of a bison. And this is a bison humerus and bison cheek tooth, the lower third molar, 68,000 years old. Similarly, reindeer, and this is the part, this is part of an antler base, again, 68,000 years old. So I think we'd have to guess that these are, by a long, long way, the oldest items here. If you're sitting in front of Google right now, it might be a good idea to check out the age of the Earth. What portion of that history does 55 million years represent? Well, here with me is Ursula Lawrence. She is a geologist. She's working with the Crossrail team. How does that work? Are you with the team the the whole time or are you you called in occasionally? No, I'm, I'm employed directly by Crossrail. 
um, and I um, have responsibility for part of the route to make sure that the uh, ground conditions are um, understood appropriately and, and that's incorporated into the design and the construction methodologies. What does that mean in practical terms? There's some very business talk going on there. What, what do you have to do day to day? Um, it means that making sure that the contractors have got all the information about the ground, all the, all the, all the test results, that um, we've taken all the right water measurements um, and that when we, we uh, do our design calculations and our construction, that I'm flagging up to the construction teams, yes, you can do this, no, you can't do that. Have you thought about these pressures, those water levels coming in through those rocks? That kind of thing. Ah, right. Okay. So uh, I was, my mind was drifting away to archaeology there. So you're not. It's not specifically about the archaeology or the, or the historical side no, of it no, at all. No. This is very much about the, what the ground is doing, how That's the ground's right. going to the engineering properties, how it responds to, to the, the engineering that we propose to do, and making sure that um, the engineering is compatible with with the, the behaviour of the ground. Is the ground very varied as across London? Oh yes, it is. Yes, in the west of London, we're we're um, constructing the, the tunnels through what's called the London clay. It's very stiff. It's hard. It's like when you open up a pack of modelling clay um, or plasticine, and it's great stuff to tunnel in. If you look at an older map of of the tube network, you will see that the vast majority of it lies north of the river, and that's because it's all in the London clay. Um, when you dig it out, it will stand up for for several weeks which gives you the time to build the tunnels and the stations uh, and lay all the bricks. Um, it's only in recent years that we've become south of the river with the, with the sands, especially um, because they have water running through them. So it, it needed a development in tunnelling technology to be able to support the tunnels as we go along um, and overcome those problems. That's fascinating. We've been talking on the show in recent weeks about this kind of north-south divide, and what, public transport is one of the big ones, of course, is that there's no public transport south of the river. And if, oh, that's, so there's a geological basis for that? Oh, yes, very much so. Yes, it even caught out the, the famous Brunel. Um, he had a lot of problems when he was digging his tunnels. Very interesting. Uh, I'm really excited by this. Uh, do you know off the top of your head how old the Earth is? Uh, 4,600 million years. No, yes, 4,600 million, yes. Okay, so this it's I was I wasn't quite sure what sort of portion of time fifty five million years represents, but it's still a reasonable uh, way into it. it what, is, yes. what, so these must be the oldest exhibits here. They are indeed, yes, by a long way. And apart from their great age, which I'm imagining must be shared by a lot of uh, bits of rock around town, yes, um, right. what, what makes these bits of amber special? Well, the chance of us finding it for a start. Um, the amber was, was formed um, in a very tropical environment. Where we're standing now was at the bottom of a beautiful, shallow, tropical sea. Um, land was off to the west, um, Wiltshire, uh, West Country, Wales, Midlands, all, sort of, all points north and west. Um, a forest fire uh, affected the land, uh, heated up the resin in the trees, made it boil, um, come out of, of the trees and drip onto the floor. The forest fire went through, the rains came, and they washed this now hardened resin along with the sand and the ash and the charcoal through the streams and the rivers, through the mangrove swamps and out into the shallow tropical sea where we are now. And then about um, over the millions, millions of years, um, more and more sediments were laid up um, and then they were gradually eroded over the remaining period of time. And then about 15 years ago, we started drilling boreholes over the entire length of Crossrail. We've drilled some 1,800 boreholes, a uh, combined meterage of about 64 kilometres. 
um, and we decided to drill a borehole, one of about 100 um, at Canary Wharf. They're about 100 millimetres in diameter, and we just happened to drill it smack over the top of this tiny little piece of amber that's about the size of a 50 pence piece. So is this a rare find for you? Oh yes, very much so. Amber in in the UK rock succession is incredibly rare, and you, you literally do not need the fingers on one hand to count the numbers of pieces of amber in the UK rocks. It's very exciting. Does it have a, a greater material value for that reason? Potentially, yes. Um, I don't know what its value is, I'm afraid. I mean, like later on when we make this into a necklace and flog it, you know, <laughs> are we going to be able to charge more is what I'm asking. Um, it's, it's unsuitable for making into a necklace because it's so old, it's very fragile and, and you'd end up with just a pile of chips. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the, the bits and pieces on display here, what's, your, what, what's the thing that excites you the most? Oh, the amber. Oh, it is? Okay. Yes. But that's because I'm a geologist, not an archaeologist. So all of this other stuff, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's very new, isn't it? The idea of some pots over there, which are a few hundred years old, there's nothing in that for you, is there? No. <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> Does, is it even like anything within the time that humans have existed? No. That's not no. no, humans have only been around um, a million years, million and a half years, something like that. So this is, this is way um, before humans. This is kind of like, a, it's about 10 million years after the dinosaurs disappeared. So, if I'm imagining how you might see the world, so you, I know that, that sort of before uh, living organisms turned up, there was rocks for a long time. That's right. And this, this is clearly a result of living organisms. Yes, trees, plants. And is there, a, is there a sort of a most exciting time, in terms of the, the period, the huge majority of the, life's, uh, the life of the Earth, whether it's just rocks, is there a most exciting rock phase? Um, there's, there's, life came and went in spurts, really, because there was, it's punctuated, the history of life is punctuated by, by extinction events. There's been five big extinction events. So you get lots of really exciting life forms, and then they, they, most of them get wiped out, um, and then you, you start building up the life forms again, different life forms. Hmm. So it, it's, there are more exciting bits and less exciting bits. Well, that's very interesting. So uh, am I right in thinking then that amber being the product of a, a life form, even though I would think of that as being a sort of a, a rock, essentially, yes. but it's not, is it? No. But it is the direct product of the... It's the resin coming out of the trees. It's dripped onto the ground, and then over the period of time, yeah. it's um, hardened. And so you get different ambers according to which of the periods of yes. life on Earth? Yes, that's correct, yes. I feel like I've learnt something. <laughs> I didn't plan to, but I think I, I might just have done it. Excellent. <laughs> well, we're in it over the skeleton here who is laid out in the way you would expect. Although on a table, which is probably not the way that he or she expected. And that's one question answered straight away. What we can learn from this skeleton, says a information page next to it. The shape of the skull and pelvis reveal that this was a male individual. <laughs> we can see that there was a copper alloy object being held during burial and and that's uh, judged by there being green staining on the upper left arm and there are deposits of plaque on several teeth so we've got poor dental hygiene and a carbohydrate rich diet and on it goes so some straightforward detective work going on here Above it is a picture of a crossrail, presumably a crossrail archaeologist, brushing away the earth from several such skeletons. And they're laid out in a way that makes them look like they've uh, recently gone to bed. 
Well, with me is Ambrose Hyde of London Black Plaques, and he is taking in the skeleton, amongst other things. What are you making of this exhibition so far, Ambrose? Well, I mean, I love the human stories, so I was naturally attracted to the skeleton in the room. Um, it's, it's a fascinating one. It comes from the site of the original Bedlam Hospital, which is now Liverpool Street Station. Um, and the tantalising thing is we can't know if it was a patient or not. Um, we believe that other people may have been buried along with the patients at the graveyard there. Uh, I mean, obviously, we may well find more from uh, examining the, the, the bones, but uh, it's quite powerful to think that this could have been one of the patients at the very first Bedlam Hospital back in the, the, the 15th, 16th centuries. So the area in which they were found, this was the burial ground outside the hospital? That's right, yes. Uh, and, uh, well, talking to the expert from the Museum of London, we can't be sure that all the patients were in, the, in this graveyard alone. They, they, they do believe that other people in the parish were also buried here. But uh, it's a very powerful, powerful reminder of... of uh, the site really obviously there's there's nothing left liverpool street broadgate the whole area is totally redeveloped um so quite an amazing find uh and they're talking about some 300 of these bodies uh in a fairly small area it's difficult for me at least looking at this not to imagine that one day somebody might be looking at my bare bones on a table what what do you think of that when that idea comes to mind well that's true if you've been at the madhouse now that might be interesting (laughs) Um, I mean, the, there's, there's time. The, 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 obviously, bedlam has become a, a figure of speech. The, the term bedlam, um, and this, you know, this is just an amazing reminder of it. Um, we often forget, of course, bedlam was one of the prime tourist sites in London in its day. Uh, kind of would uh, would oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Would equate with the London Eye and Tower of London today that uh, you would pay a. a a token fee, you'd be let in and you'd be allowed to taunt the patients. Of course, patients wasn't the word they'd recognise. These were effectively prisoners. Um, obviously, mental illness was thought to be a, some, a, a curse from God, so these people were locked up and, uh, yes, you could go and taunt them. Uh, oh, I see, so that made them legitimate targets in a way that sort of morally legitimised the bad behaviour. I, I guess you could look at it that way, yes. Um, I mean, you could even hire them out for parties. Um, You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. These the, the, the inmates would be sold out to come to your party and entertain in the, in the manner of a, a kind of court fool, effectively. And, you know, tantalising to think that this could have been one of them. The inmates at Bedlam are actually called antics. Uh, which is clearly a word we recognise today. It would have a K on the end in those times. Uh, and interestingly, Antic is a, still a surname that crops up occasionally. Um, so uh, if you have the surname Antic, I think you know where you came from. There's a fascinating insight here into the life of London not that it was uh, anything that we would recognise we're looking at AD 200 the main Roman road to Lincoln and York left the city at Bishopsgate just to the east of Liverpool Street and uh, reading through the information here it says to the west side of the Walbrook soil sample suggests that cereal cultivation or crop processing was taking place in nearby fields by the medieval period the area is known as Moorfields 
a marshy area that may have resulted from poor drainage caused by construction of the successive city walls. We have found deep marsh deposits at Moorgate and Finsbury Circus. I don't know about you, but I, I find it quite easy to disassociate the names of various places in London with their literal meaning. And as soon as you think about it, yeah, Moorgate, the, the gate to the moor or onto the moor fields. Makes perfect sense. I suppose decontextualised and found in a, uh, in a built-up urban area such as uh, Liverpool Street most certainly is. Very difficult to remember that the name has such a bucolic or agricultural origin. I'm in front of a table now which is decked out with things suggesting urban life from a variety of uh, centuries from the 1580s onwards. To the left we've got clay pipes. It's very difficult to do too much in London without running into a clay pipe, as anyone will know who has mudlarked. My favourite here, I think, is a domino. Made from bone or ivory, 18th or 19th century. And dominoes were a relatively common archaeological find. They often found them in the backyards of taverns, and this one was found in Davis Street, off Bond Street. We're really pleased to be able to put these kind of initial results together for the general public tomorrow. We're holding a, a one-day exhibition um, and hoping to invite a lot of members of the public through the door to see what we've been finding on the project. One of the very important um, legacy objectives of the project is to, is to really share this information. Some of the finds we've got here uh, are making a real difference to London's archaeology uh, and what we understand about it. You'll notice just by looking around the room, starting there by the door, the earliest finds we've made are around 68,000 years old. We understand from uh, dating of the soils, uh, bison bones were found in. We also have a piece of very rare amber. So that's where the story starts and then progresses around the room, literally to uh, the 20th century, 100 years ago, with the closing of the Thames Ironworks Shipbuilding Company, once the largest shipbuilder in London, on the River Lee, um, and sadly went out of business in uh, 1912, 100 years ago actually, uh, precisely, um, due to competitive forces with the, uh, the great yards of the North East and Scotland. So shipbuilding left London at that point. The, um, the shipbuilding yard and um, Paddington, they share a very important engineering history for the Crossrail project. The Thames Ironworks was the a world first in producing iron ships and those innovative vessels went on to uh, have a kind of world level impact really on the world's navies and therefore the power politics of the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. And they also produced a lot of the ironwork for Brunel structures which dotted around Britain. So there was a first in engineering, which Crossrail are kind of proudly building on. The second uh, particular site I wanted to mention was the uh, Paddington Great Western Railway, another great Brunel first, the first long-distance railway in the world. And there again, Crossrail is working very closely with his original station to obviously modernise and enhance it, produce a new ticket hall, but paying great respect as well to the original Victorian engineering. So those are kind of two very recent sites, very closely connected with the project, which we just wanted to highlight. In between 
the very ancient Ice Age finds and those two uh, Victorian sites I just mentioned, a whole range of different uh, stuff you, you can see, the public are going to be able to see around the room tomorrow. We've got two sites right in the middle of, of uh, Roman London, just at Liverpool Street and also Farringdon. Both those sites are very closely associated with the ancient city of London and, of course, the medieval city as well. We then, if you imagine the West End and the, and the Near East End today being green fields in, still in the 16th century, we then have a number of sites which look at that, that big kind of expansion of urbanism out from the centre into these uh, areas now fully part of the, the heart of the city. So we're, we're charting, you know, the complete growth in these results. These are preliminary results. We've been working for three years mainly on the initial investigations. Uh, and what I mean by that is we dig trial pits first to understand what's at each location. And then we'll be coming back over the next three years to look at many of these places in a great greater area and a greater level of detail. So what we're showing uh, the public this weekend is a kind of small snapshot, really, of what we expect to find in the, in the long-term duration of the project. OK, thanks very much. So I'm with Jay Carver now, who is, uh, the, I'm guessing, heading up the archaeology side of things. Yeah, I'm the project archaeologist for Crossrail, so I'm kind of overseeing the archaeology programme. So you have a team of archaeologists under you? We've got a large team of archaeologists um, working on the project. I think we added it up the other day, actually, in anticipation of that question. And I, I think 150 archaeologists have worked on all the kind of research in terms of the early years of the project, and also through with the design teams who've kind of carefully designed the railway where possible to minimise impacts on the archaeology. There's a, there's a whole series of archaeologists who worked with the engineers at that stage. And then we've got a small team with myself in the, in the project office. And then, of course, um, you know, quite a large team of archaeologists from Oxford Archaeology and Museum of London out there on the sites doing the work. And that must be a logistical issue then because all of this is happening more or less simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, it generally has to happen with construction. Of course, a, l- a lot of these are existing buildings before we start the construction work. We did manage to get investigations through the basements of some buildings before they were demolished. But again, you're still working just in, in terms of the general life, uh, life cycle of the construction of all, all these different places, you know, within a yeah. year or so. It's, you're going to be spread pretty th- thin, right? Yeah, I mean, not everything's happening at once. Crossrail's kind of a, a phased construction project, so we, we tend to kind of move in a wave across London. So we haven't been overstretched so far. The, the big issue we've got is um, some of the very significant sites we have, such as Liverpool Street, do need very careful planning in terms of the timing uh, with the construction phase we will have certain amounts of time agreed where we've got to go in there finish the dig as quickly as we can but of course as well as we can as well if I was hoping to home in on conflict it's got to the obvious place to go is between uh, the archaeologists and the, the people doing the construction because they want you to hurry up and get out of the way don't they essentially yeah their job is to build the, the railway and, you know, in some cases we could be seen as an um, impediment to that. But it's a very close working team in Crossrail. All the companies have come together in a single office. So we plan very carefully and we hold a lot of kind of pre-construction meetings to really work out how long is needed, what can be moved around to accommodate the archaeology work. So 
We're hoping for a smooth ride. And it seems to me like however much planning you do, there must be variables thrown up by what you discover that throw the plans out of wax in, in some direction or other. Yeah, there's always unexpected discoveries. Um, we're, we're here at the exhibition now. Uh, one of those was the discovery of these animal remains from a very long time ago, the bison bones and the reindeer bones. Yeah, right, these are fantastic. Uh, 68,000 years old? 68,000 years old, we estimate. Um, this is from dating the soils in which they were found. Uh, that, was a, that was a classic case of an unexpected discovery, although we had an archaeologist on site because we knew it was possible to make this type of find. Um, when we actually found it, it was right, right at the end of the, the excavation process before the first tonne of boring machine needed to get in place. So that was certainly a rush. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to ask a really stupid question now. I can see that different uh, people in, involved in archaeology have different specialisms, different eras or, or time periods that they're, they're going to be specialist in. Do you need to have everybody on site all at once because your, I don't know, Georgian London person isn't necessarily going to recognise the significance of your uh, ancient uh, bone of a, a leg of an animal? That's an interesting question. Uh, we don't, is the short answer. We have specialists of all types kind of on call. The archaeologists who are doing the monitoring on site are kind of highly experienced. It's not a job for the, someone just new in their career to take on board the monitoring work. Um, so this so is like a GP. You've got, you've got the GP as the gatekeeper and then specialists. I think that's a, quite a good analogy. The, the GP is the field archaeologist who spends his time dealing with many different periods because he, he or she tends to move around different sites, different cities, getting a very good experience and a good feel for all periods. And then... Uh, when necessity arises we call in those particular specialists to give advice and, and do the detailed recording and do you get very hands on yourself or are you paperwork bound I've been, um, I've been around a couple of decades I suppose doing archaeology so I've, I've also got a good GP background as you put it um, I tend these days to visit sites maybe once a week just so, to see for myself what we've discovered so I know how to translate that back into the kind of management process yeah. what, from what's here what would you like most to blow the trumpet about I think uh, the work we've been doing uh, on the Thames Ironworks shipyard is exceptional right yeah I was reading about this was uh, six eight months ago this became public knowledge didn't it yeah that's right I, the reason I think it's exceptional is because it's only a hundred years old but it's been lost and forgotten already and it was an amazingly important site for the people of Canning Town, employed thousands of people. You know, a lot of local people will have, you know, ancestors who worked there. And it's, it's kind of been forgotten. And I think rediscovering it during the Crossroad Works is a really nice opportunity to bring that site. It's, it's a very important history, of kind of world-class importance due to the, the work it was doing, you know, back into the public consciousness. And, you know for Canning Town I, I hope that's going to be a very positive outcome and, and finally does this moment in the Crossrail project mark uh, a particular point of achievement for you is your work going to start to diminish now as, as it goes forward no not really I think this really marks about halfway through the archaeology programme this is the culmination of about three years work on investigating different sites and we've still got about another three years work to do to complete the rest of the, the areas we really haven't started looking at yet. So this is a halfway point. It's a celebration of we've found a lot so far. We're sharing that with the public now. And we, we take that as a very important 
uh, obligation to make sure people hear about these finds early and they don't have to wait six years for a, a book to come out before they can read uh, about the finds. Well, thanks very much for uh, allowing us to, to see all this stuff. You're thanks, John. Very, very interesting to talk to you. Thanks. I've uh, spotted Caroline Derry over by the. Uh, are you are you looking at my clinker-built boat? I am. Yes. <laughs> what do you make of it? It's quite a large and uh, very recognisable fragment, really, isn't it? It is. It's amazing to see a piece like that. Um, and also interesting to watch the conservation in process. They're having to keep it damp because obviously it's from the river. I was speculating earlier that it might be somebody wandering up with a watering can, and it basically was. <laughs> Pretty much. Slightly finer spray, but a watering can nonetheless. <laughs> what have you seen elsewhere in the exhibition that's caught your attention? Um, some amazing old cross and blackwell jars. There's one of uh, mushroom cats up, which looks intriguing. Oh, should we go and have a look? Okay. I, haven't t- I haven't seen these yet. This seems very... Mu- I'm not, I can't quite place my finger on what the link is, but you do ghost signs, of course, and you've got a, a wide collection of uh, pictures of ghost signs. This seems very much in keeping with that. Absolutely, although ghost signs are my main interest, the old advertising material and so on is always fascinating. And this is a... Um, most of a bottle of Cross and Well Blackwell's Mushroom Cats Up, now empty. Um, but the label's mostly survived on it, and it's amazing. It's and it's a paper label as well, isn't it? Yes, and very detailed. Lots of wording, not much pictures. <laughs> 19th to 20th century, but... It looks kind of Victorian, doesn't it? It does. And what else have we got? Here we've got some, uh, some Dundee marmalade, if you fancy a bit of that. Uh, the Seville Orange Marmalade from John Muir and Son, uh, prepared under patent, very important. More Cross and Blackwell. I, I think this is testament to the strength of Cross and Blackwell's jars. Yes, there's one for household jam, which sounds quite ominous. <laughs> it does, it's like when you go for a curry and it's meat curry. Yeah, very much the same. Very non-specific. How are things going on, on the blog, by the way? We should, we should do a... We should pass you by without a plug for the blog, for goodness sake. <laughs> um, pretty well, although it's had a quiet week or so because I've just got back off holiday, but lots more about to come. <laughs> <laughs> Remind us of, the, uh, of the, the URL, would you? It's Caroline LD. You've been on holiday and you couldn't remember your URL for a moment. <laughs> I couldn't. So it's carolineld.blogspot.com. <laughs> and probably soon to uh, feature some pictures of Cross and Blackwell jars, I suspect. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think I've discovered a tombstone. I could be proven wrong in just a moment, but I'm with Robert Hartle. He is the senior archaeologist. A senior archaeologist. A senior archaeologist, yes, before we get into trouble with the other senior archaeologists. <laughs> uh, and you said you've had a hand in most of what we see here. Yeah, I've excavated most of these sites um, in one capacity or another. Um, so you're actually there d- day on day with the with the toothbrush or whatever it might be uncovering this stuff. Yeah, with the with the trowel. Yeah, don't use toothbrushes very often. Um, I don't know. I have this idea that that you go at a sort of a snail's pace and you just gradually brush away the soil. It, it's fairly it's fairly rapid. Uh, we obviously we have to be careful and, and delicate um, in certain in certain areas. Uh, you, you have to be delicate and careful with skeletons, obviously. Mm. Um, 
can I? This is a really silly question, but just to prove that I've never done anything remotely archaeological at all. As you're digging down, how do you know how sort of hard to press and how, whether you can really go at it or whether you've got to take away a layer by layer? Because some of these things are really quite fragile. It would only take one wrong move, surely. Hmm. Um, well, you get you get a feel for what 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 it is you're digging. Um, sometimes you get dumps of uh, soil that are obviously just big big meter thick dumps of um of soil that someone's thrown down to consolidate the ground for example um and that you can that that you can you can dig quite quickly and easily so as you're looking at the soil you kind of get a sense you're, you're seeing the different soil types that are going on there yeah yeah i mean you can um see water lane deposits or, or dump deposits um leveling deposits um or, or cemetery uh, a cemetery a cemetery soil has a particular look and feel um, it's, yeah, I mean, with the with the with the bones and the burials in, within the ground, it gets a certain certain organic brown brown quality. That's one of the creepiest things I've heard for a while, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't think I don't think that's the first time you've deployed that line. I, I think you know the power of that information. <laughs> no, no, I haven't really said that before. But yeah. well, okay. In future, if you really want to creep somebody, <laughs> there's a certain feel to cemetery soil. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that leads us. It, this is a tombstone, right? Uh, it's it's a grave marker, probably. Uh, only one face is um, worked; the other face is rough, so it probably would have been laid on laid on the ground. Um, obviously, it's frag- fragmented. It's, it's not all of it. And we're missing quite a few portions. All I can see is aged twenty three. That's the only clear bit to my eye. Three weeks. This is. Oh. Um, it's it's a, obviously it's a bit fragmented, and we've lost a lot of the the writing. But it, I think. It looks like it says John Bale, um, possibly son of John Bale, something or other, age 25 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so not years, 25 weeks. This is um, it's a young infant we're talking about here. Um, died uh, the 13th of April, 1664. So uh, a year or two before the uh, Great Plague and the Fire of London. And we've got lots of other much smaller objects alongside this great big slab, this cracked slab. And some of them look a bit like they might be tool handles, perhaps? Yeah, there's a variety of um, handles, um, various types of different workings. Um, you've, uh, represented here is uh, the uh, whole process of worked animal bone. You've got the, um, the animal bones themselves, and then they're broken down and, and turned on the lathe. Um, Pegs for musical instruments, uh, various. Um, uh, this is this here is um, from a, a fan, from a lady's fan. Oh, I see. How, how on earth can you tell that? <laughs> well, it's easy. See, it's got this um, this uh, rivet um, pivot bit. Oh, I see where the handles meet at the bottom there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a wig curler, a ceramic wig curler, apparently. Uh, I didn't know this. I was this, this is about the same... Well, it's, it's sort of bigger at each end. It's a sort of vaguely dumbbell-shaped piece of bone, is it? It's ceramic. It's uh, oh. pottery. Um, and a, uh, a couple of metal items we have as well. Uh, a buckle and a, and a row-shaped mount. Uh, would have been riveted onto something leather, perhaps, or a bit of clothing or something. It actually looks as though the metal stuff has come off worst from its transition through time. Some of the other pieces look as though they've come through more or less... Uh, intact. Yeah, we've had um, in the high in the the higher up deposits. The, the lower deposits are more waterlogged. The Roman deposits, we've had some really nice finds. 
metal finds from the Roman layers. Um, but these higher up deposits, it's not hasn't been kept as waterlogged, so um, they, they've corroded quite badly. Um, this this coffin handle, for example, um, that's, that's that you can just about tell what it is, but it's um, it's very badly corroded. And did these all come from the same site as you as you drilled down through the site, or whereabouts are these ones? This is from this, is, this table. All the finds on this table are from the same from the same site. Not the same trenches, but the same site. Um, but this represents uh, several hundred years of, of history. The uh, the latest the latest things are probably from the early 18th century, and the earliest things we have are uh, medieval. Um, You're pointing out uh, what looks like a decorative tile of some kind. Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, decorated floor tile. And are these completely mixed up, or do they are they found more or less in, in sort of clusters that belong together in some way? No, most of these are, are spread out through the site. Some of these earlier finds are in the marsh deposits beneath the cemetery. So they would have been just rubbish that have been thrown down and, and got mixed up in the, cem- in the uh, marsh. And the, the rest of the stuff is from the, the cemetery to, um, horizon. In amongst the, um, the backfills of graves. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, some of this, some of this material, the worked bone, is probably uh, has arrived there as a consequence of fly tipping. It's just stuff that's been thrown away into the cemetery, and it's just worked its way. It's been when they've been digging to uh, to inter people, they've, um, they've this has worked its way into the the backfills of the graves. What's the sign for you? Because I presume now and again you must hit on something that's more exciting than your average find. What's the, what's the first inkling that you get that you're onto something? Um, probably when it's just when it when it's uncovered. I mean, it is quite often you can't tell that you're you're about to hit something exciting. Um, sometimes you you well I, the last the last phase of um, work we did in Liverpool Street there was you could see that there was a. There was something cut into the ground. Um, there was a shape, a, a square shape, and it looked like it was uh, uh, it looked like it was going to be a pit. Um, so I knew that was probably potentially a, a Roman rubbish pit. So there could be interesting, interesting finds thrown into there, or a ditch, say, some sort of linear feature that's you can see in the soil. And again, I mean, you can always find interesting things in, within ditches, uh, but other things like um, walls, perhaps. You don't know until you, you don't know they're there until you've, you're on top of them and they're exposed and mm. there you are. Very interesting. I was trying to figure out where a future archaeologist would want to look for information about our time, and we've made it pretty easy with these big uh, landfill sites, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> they're going to be there for quite some time, I should think. Um, yeah, and lots of a huge variety of uh, everyday rubbish for people to sift through in the future. Where do you suppose they're going to... I can understand this ditches. Have we got an equivalent of ditches or uh, bits of ground where we, where we get rid of this kind of stuff now? Do we do the same sort of thing? Canals, I suppose. I mean, they're not... They're, most canals aren't uh, a Victorian, perhaps, but um, they, they will have had 150 years of rubbish being thrown into them. Although they're going to... I suppose they dredge them. They maybe clean them out every so often. Hmm. I wonder if we're just... Are we a little bit too clean? I mean, even as, as we're digging up for a new building here, we're, we're taking an awful lot of out, out of the soil. We're taking the stories out from underneath it. Are we leaving much behind? I don't know. Well, there's... 
I mean, every inch of London would have been covered in in interesting archaeology. It, it sort of gets whittled away by developments, and um, the Victorians were very careless. They just dug wherever they fancied and didn't didn't uh, carefully record what the, what they found. But um, that seems so counterintuitive when it comes to the Victorians. I thought they'd be much more methodical than that. No, um, I don't know. I, th- I think the um, discipline of archaeology was in its infancy back then, and um, there were lots of nice discoveries and interesting things. But uh, a lot of it just got uh, dug away without without any thought about future generations and mm. the fact that they might be interested in, in what's being thrown away. My final question: What, what would be the ideal if you uh, dream location to do some archaeology is there a particular place you'd love to get underneath or inside or not sure tricky i mean there's lots of lovely places um potentially still underneath london um lots of the old cities still still surviving underneath underneath modern buildings and roads so just a question of time yeah yeah i mean unfortunately a lot of the roads for example you um you very rarely get a chance to excavate under them because they've they they've been roads for hundreds of years and there probably will be roads for hundreds of years after that. So no one's going to build a building in the middle of a road. Um, well, having said that, Crossrail, we wouldn't be excavating in Liverpool Street if if the Crossrail project wasn't happening, right? Because they're putting their station in there. That gives us the opportunity to to uh, to examine this area, this particular area that hasn't really been touched. Um, that much. Also, oh, it is all potentially still up for grabs then, and presumably something like the uh, the Second World War, with big chunks of land being sort of tossed up by explosives and all that. That must have uh, given an opportunity for people to get in and see stuff they wouldn't normally have seen as well. Yeah, a lot of the blitz, the blitz damage um, did give the opportunity. Re- re- redevelopment um, gave the opportunity for people to get in there and have a look at sites that have been covered for for hundreds of years. And yeah, I heard they found a church in the blitz. Have you heard about this standby? It's down by Moorgate, and you can see it's not very much. It's about as big as that area just over there. I'm gesturing towards a small area, um, and there's just the, the, the bottom corner of the church. Um, but, yeah, apparently it was uncovered by bombing, and now they, now they know where it is. There we go. <laughs> what is it? Robert, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, this isn't the biggest room in the world, and there is an awful lot packed in here. There's even, although nobody seems to have paid it any heed at all, what looks like a demonstration of how one does archaeology. So it's like a sandpit, basically, with some tools and brushes, and, uh, a dustpan and brush here. So we could pretend to be an archaeologist for the day if we wanted. A great exhibition. I do hope that this is going to pop up again in this form and perhaps with some of the new finds as the crossrail excavation goes on. Waves 
of the open sea 